0: you just type in Matthew 27 into your phone and we are going to be hopefully prayerfully covering all of Matthew 27 because I could not find a good place to divide up this chapter so buck up your seat belts. we're going to get through 66 verses of Matthew 27 this morning we're going to uh, begin in just a moment but as you guys make your way that direction let me remind you that we're in the end of this section which is the rejection of uh, King Jesus and so Matthew can be d- divided up into different pieces. It uh, begins with his announcement. We then quickly move into the, the resistance of King Jesus as people didn't like the message that he had to share. And now we find ourselves in these last uh, several chapters in the flat-out rejection of King Jesus. But it didn't begin like that. It actually started with them celebrating him. They were excited about Jesus in Matthew 21. They celebrated him triumphantly as he came into the city of Jerusalem. They cried out, Hosanna, save now we pray. And they laid down their clothes in the street and palm branches as they, Jesus came in on the donkey. They were expecting him fully to come in and drive out the Romans. But instead, much to their surprise, at the end of chapter 21, he drove out the money changers in the temple. He began by actually cleansing in the house of God before he cleansed anywhere else, which I've mentioned to you as a side note a couple times. Uh, God always begins cleanup in his own house first. So this was no exception. He comes in and sees people being taken advantage of. He drives them uh, out of the temple, to which in chapter 22 they approach Jesus and say, on whose authority do you operate? And he gives them not one answer, but three answers. He tells them, I operate under the authority of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He gives three examples of that. Now this causes Jesus to then turn the tables back on them again, only this time spiritually instead of physically, as he in chapter 23 pronounces woes upon these religious and political leaders and as he's pronouncing these woes they sound pretty bad to the disciples and they come up to him in chapters 24 and 25 and they say look this doesn't sound great Uh, can you give us a little highlight when is this going to happen a little inside track would be nice we'd like to avoid that so in chapters 24 and 25 we have jesus sharing when these things will take place the the end of days if you will and that is what we call the olivet discourse as jesus gives that on the mount of olives now Chapter 26, where we were last week, we see the plot to kill Jesus has heightened to the point where he's now uh, had a trumped up trial against him, and they have uh, wrongly accused him, the Jews of the Sanhedrin, this highest court in all the land of Israel. And so, from there, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 27, verse 1. And we see, and when uh, morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus. To put him to death and when they had bound him they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor and so we see in these first two verses Jesus is now delivered to Pontius Pilate which might cause you to ask why if they've already accused him and convicted him of blasphemy did they deliver him to Pontius Pilate now the reason is twofold Uh, first of all politically they were not actually allowed to by the Roman government put anyone to death the Roman government had taken away capital punishment from the Jews, which caused a lot of consternation with the Jewish people. They felt like a portion of their power had been taken away. It very much had. And so they were not allowed to actually kill Jesus, and so they had to deliver him to the Roman authorities in order to act on this. Now, it didn't stop them from every now and again to sneak in a good stoning, which we'll see some of that in the book of Acts. They still you know, get one in there every now and again, but for the most part, they're not allowed to kill anyone in terms of a capital punishment standpoint. Now, the second reason, though, is uh, scripturally and spiritually that this had to take place. You see, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says that cursed is every man who is placed upon a tree or killed upon a tree. And we know that Jesus is here to take the curse of all mankind. And so if Jesus is going to fulfill prophecy, he couldn't uh, die at the hand of the Jews because their form of capital punishment was stoning. Jesus was destined, just as he said in his own words, to be crucified. And we also see this fulfillment completely played out from Psalm 22. So I'd encourage you, we don't give much homework, but if you want to check out what the crucifixion looks like from an Old Testament standpoint, Psalm 22, written by David a thousand years before Jesus was born, almost lays out the crucifixion verbatim. It's actually eerie when you read through what David wrote. And so we see prophecy had to be fulfilled, therefore Jesus had to be brought before Pilate. Now then, we're going to move to verse 3, and we're going to look at a little bit of a parenthetical section back to the life of Judas. So we're going to leave Jesus there appearing before Pontius Pilate, we're now going to go to Judas, who has just betrayed Jesus, in verse 3. And then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. And so Judas, filled with remorse over what he had done to Jesus. He looked at the situation, and he was uh, heartbroken over what he had done, but I want to point out uh, very carefully that Judas was full of remorse. Understand that remorse is different than repentance. A remorse is feeling bad about something. Repentance is wanting to turn completely away from it. And so for Judas, he has betrayed Jesus. Uh, No doubt in this betrayal, he fully expected something to take place. Probably, I think at least, this is my own interpretation, Judas was expecting Jesus to either prove that he was the Messiah or that he was not. That if he put him in a corner, painted him in a corner, he would have to show everyone that he was the king. But the reality is, uh, Jesus, there were no inconsistencies in his life. He was exactly the same way during his arrest as he was before, as he was after. And so in doing this, Judas realized that he had killed innocent blood. (laughs) That he had made a grave mistake. And yet, in that, it was only remorse that he felt. And so in verse 5... And then he, Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And so we see the end of Judas Iscariot actually ends with him committing suicide by hanging himself. Now, I put a question up here on the screen because I think it's important for us to understand that what the difference was between Judas and Peter. because we look at the end of chapter 26, and what we find is that Peter probably even did a worse job betraying Jesus than Judas did. I mean, Judas at least acknowledged that he knew Jesus. Peter, uh, you know, vehemently said, I don't even know this man. Judas planted a big old whopper of a kiss on him. So at some point in time, Judas was actually a little more admirable than even Peter was. And yet the difference was uh, Judas had remorse for what he had done. He felt bad, but there was no change of heart. Whereas for the apostle Peter, he was repentant. He was determined to make a change and allow God to make that change in him, which is precisely why uh, I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul addresses the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. <laughs> the sorrow of the world reflects upon how I am a failure. The sorrow of God reflects on how God is successful. (laughs) He is very successful even in the midst of our failings. And so giving this over to Jesus is the difference between Peter and Judas. They both failed miserably. It's who are you going to turn to in that moment, the world or to the Lord? Now, also interestingly enough, with uh, Judas hanging himself Uh, deuteronomy chapter 19 i won't go there for the sake of time but what that uh, section says is that anyone who bears false witness actually has to suffer the fate of the person who was wrongly convicted and so what we find is uh, jesus hung on a cross on a tree and then we fast forward to judas what does he do he hangs himself from a tree and so you see scripture even fulfilled in the death of judas iscariot Now then, continuing on in verse 6, But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for them to be put into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury the strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, who they... Who they of the children of Israel priced and gave them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so we see they take the money that was thrown back from Judas, what he was paid off with, he tosses it back in the temple. They don't know what to do with these 30 pieces of silver, so they gather it up and they go and buy a potter's field. Now, what in the world is a potter's field? A potter's field was an area located outside of the pottery shop and if you can imagine a potter as he's working, he may, uh, he may not be the most skilled craftsman, he makes a mistake. And so as he makes a mistake, he decides to just cast the pottery off, he throws it outside of his house. And so it may be, maybe it's like you guys in, in art class. Uh, every time we made a mistake in, in clay shaping, it always ended up looking like an ashtray, right? Or some kind of a pipe. Okay, I'm, maybe I'm the only one where we made lots of ashtrays, but nevertheless. Every time it's like, oh, that's no good. That's an ashtray. And, but here we see for a potter, if they make a mistake or if a vessel is broken or cracked or damaged, they would just take the used pottery and they would throw it outside and it would become this field that was essentially useless. It wasn't good for growing anything. It was just this wasteland of broken pottery. And so the chief priests bought this, and what they would use this for is burying uh, the bodies of strangers or people that were too poor and could not afford a proper burial. Now, all this to say, if you just look at this from a, from a big-picture standpoint, the blood of Jesus was literally used to buy a field full of broken vessels. And then we turn and we look at Old Testament, always lays out us, our body, as a vessel for the Holy Spirit. We are broken. We are not perfect by any means. Oftentimes we are shattered. And what we find is the blood of Jesus was used to purchase you and I back. Broken vessels. But not to remain broken. What we see is God is the great potter. He can actually take broken vessels with a little bit of heat and a little bit of pressure. It's going to take a little bit of pressure. He can actually reform and make new vessels ready to contain the Holy Spirit. So a beautiful story here in the midst of an awful set of circumstances with Judas. Now, moving on to verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' And he said to him, "'It is as you say.' And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, "'Do you not hear how many things they testify against you?' But he answered him, not a word, and so the governor marveled greatly. Now, for Pontius Pilate, he's been brought this, uh, this Jesus to appear before him. Now, Pilate, we have to understand, has had some massive political issues. Uh, the Jews are a people that are not afraid uh, not only to have a good stoning, but they also like to have a good riot. At any point in time, they are ready to overthrow the government, and they are there to riot. They're, they're trying to overthrow people. And for Pilate, this is viewed by Rome as him not having control of his territory. Rome did not care for that, so there was much pressure being put on Pilate to get control specifically of Jerusalem. So this is why the, the praetorium, this uh, highest place of the Roman council where Pilate would actually live, was located right off the edge of the Temple Mount. If you go to Jerusalem to this day, the praetorium is located right next to the temple courts because where they're going to start a riot right there at the temple. And so for Pilate, he's trying to get control of things and he's been brought essentially this political atom bomb. He doesn't know what to do with it. And so he he begins to hear what their arguments, their complaints are, but the reality is all their complaints were that Jesus broke Jewish law and the Romans could care less about Jewish law. They weren't worried at all about what he was doing. He wasn't a threat to Rome. And so he listens to these accusations being made and yet Jesus does not make any kind of rebuttal whatsoever against himself and at the same time perfectly fulfilling prophecy isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 written 700 years before jesus says this he was oppressed he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth he was led as a lamb to slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth jesus was fulfilling prophecy even by not speaking there as the accusations were being made. And he could do this because he knew no man was going to defend him. No man was going to come to his aid, but he also knew fully, good and well, that his God would. Psalm chapter 18, verse 2, says this, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is what the Lord Jesus could rely upon that his Father would be there at his side. It's the same thing, by the way, that you and I have in terms of defense when people come at us with wild accusations. Have you ever noticed if you try to defend yourself against the accusations, what happens? It's more accusations, more argument, more pain, more problems. And so this is precisely what Jesus was actually squelching as he did not say a thing and he simply just trusted in the Father to do the answering for him. Now then, verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And for, they, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate had already read through their whole game. He knew that the only reason Jesus was appearing before them was because they were envious of him. But he also knows, again, he's got a political issue on his hand. And so he has this brilliant idea. I always release a prisoner right before the Passover feast, so I'll bring up the notorious Barabbas. This guy was a murderer, a deceiver, a thief. Surely to goodness, they're going to pick Jesus, this innocent man. I'll be able to release him, and... uh, continue to keep barabbas under arrest and so this is his thought process at this time now in verse 19 while he was sitting on the judgment seat his wife sent to him saying have nothing to do with that just man for i have suffered many things today in a dream because of him and what we find uh, through church history i believe it's even josephus that says that pilate's wife would go on to become a christian so Jesus is, is uh, leaving no stone unturned to try to actually get to Pilate through his uh, wife, and yet he does not listen. Verse, I know many women are shaking their heads up and down. See, told you. But, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they would ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor answered and said to him, which of these two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. And then Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And so he presents to them these two options. The chief priests, they convince the crowd, call for Jesus, we want Jesus to die, he's a blasphemer. And so they call for the release of Barabbas, leaving uh, Pilate to to ask a question that has to be answered by every single person in this life or the next. What should I do with this Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? He's appearing before me, obviously innocent, obviously doesn't have any blemish at all, and yet, what do I do with him? And so we continue in verse 23. And then the governor said, "What? Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified! When Pilate saw that they that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And so what we see is that no fault is found against Jesus. Pilate recognizes it plainly and clearly, and yet, tragically, instead of doing something about it, he just washes his hands of Jesus. And, and the people instead choose Barabbas to release Now, Barabbas' name, I think, is uh, interesting. It's uh, Bar, which means son of, Abba, son of the father, or son of a father is how it would be translated. And so what we find is the people actually choose the son of a father instead of the son of the father. And when we look at at how folks choose, uh, oftentimes what you'll find is they will pick whatever looks the most like them, (laughs) the most uh, nature that they can find to them, So throughout human history, it's never really been the difference. that The people will pick whatever is going to make themselves look better. and So they choose Barabbas rather than choosing the Son of God. Now, we could uh, rail on Pilate an awful lot, but I want to tell you, uh, as I sit here, I look at different opportunities I've had in my life to stand up for Jesus, to stand up for what's right, and I will wholeheartedly admit far too often I have washed my hands. I said this looks too messy I'm gonna let other people deal with this I don't want to get involved I'm just gonna turn and go the other way and so for Pilate, this is a tragic for this man mm-hmm. now then in verse 25 we read and all the people answered and say his blood be on us and on our children <laughs> horrible thing that they brought upon themselves as they call for the blood of Jesus to actually be placed upon uh, their heads And in fact, if you look throughout history, it very much was. The blood of Jesus very much was placed upon the heads of these Jewish people. Because if you go to Jerusalem to this day, wonderful place full of all sorts of history, but do you know the one place that you find the most history as you go into Jerusalem and throughout Israel? It's under your feet. (laughs) It's in the excavations under your feet. Because as uh, territories and people would come in to conquer them, they would just simply level the city, and build a new city on top of it and over and over again throughout history jerusalem has been destroyed and built back upon and destroyed and built back upon so as it's excavated like the picture in the top right for tens and twenties and thirties and hundreds even of feet down you see excavation after excavation of history that has been completely destroyed because the blood of jesus and the prophets are upon the head of this people now then verse 26 And then he, Pilate, released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now this scourging was essentially a sentence to be whipped with a flagellum. A flagellum was a whip that had uh, multiple leather tails. And at the end of each tail, they would either put uh, broken shards of glass or rock or even uh, lead balls at the end, so that as it's struck across the back of the person uh, being condemned it would grab a hold of the flesh and tear it's a little pg-13 but ultimately what would happen is is a back would be completely laid open uh, often even internal organs showing so rather brutal what would take place and these uh, lashings would happen uh, 40 times but they would hold back one they do 39 because that's merciful in their eyes it's far too barbaric to lash someone 40 times so jesus would have been lashed uh, 39 times now then Verse, uh, excuse me, what we find in uh, John chapter 19, verse five is uh, after this had taken place, Pilate brings Jesus back before the people and he says, Behold the man, uh, uh, just a, a horrific scene you can imagine bloodied and battered, and Pilate says, Behold the man, the man who you 've convicted to death. I think as Pilate calls that out what he 's really hoping for, and i 'm probably reading a lot into this is isn 't this enough isn 't this far enough and yet they continue for him to be called for him to be crucified though then verse 27 and then the soldiers of the governor took jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him when they had twisted a crown of thorns they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed a knee before him and mocked him and saying and said hail king of the jews and then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him to be crucified. And so we see, as we can easily pick on the Jewish people for being overly violent towards Jesus, what we find is that the Gentiles are no different. (laughs) The world treated him all the same. And so here the Romans, representing the world at large, they took him, they mocked him, They beat him there at the praetorium. And then they they took this crown of thorns and they twisted it and they placed it upon his head, shoving it down into his scalp. Now, this, they wouldn't have known, their Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, but when you look at the fall of mankind, what they essentially did was they placed the curse of mankind upon the head of Jesus. Because as God was pronouncing judgment there on Adam for turning away from him and turning towards Satan in his own will, Uh, What he says in Genesis chapter 3, he says, uh, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles did not come about until the fall of mankind. And so a, a representation of the curse itself were thorns and thistles. So as they took these and fashioned them, what they were essentially doing is taking the curse of Adam and placing it on The head of Jesus. Now, then in verse 31, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear the cross. And so as they led Jesus away, off to be crucified, they come across this gentleman named uh, Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is an area of uh, northern Africa. Simon, no doubt, was a a Jewish man who was coming back for the Passover feast. And as he's coming back, he just so happened to run into Jesus. He happened to just cross paths with him. Now, it's very possible, uh, I believe, that he was picked out of the crowd because being from northern Africa, he would have been a black man. So he would have stood out in the crowd, would have been easy to pick out, and they said, you, you carry the cross of Jesus, who at this point in time was so uh, weakened from the blood loss, he couldn't carry the cross himself or the beam that was laid across his back. Now, I wanted to highlight this because what we find is uh, Simon crosses paths with Jesus. And if you go on through your New Testament, uh, Simon the Cyrene had two sons that are mentioned, one named Rufus and one named Alexander. show up in Romans and in Acts and what I love about this is as Simon came in contact with Jesus no doubt he shared that with his family I want to encourage dads right now specifically but we'll we'll paint with a broader brush both moms and dads as you have run-ins with Jesus don't be afraid to share them with your kids share the times you had to come along and bear a cross or there was pain, or there were things that you you came into contact with because you just simply crossed paths with Jesus, you will never know how that will play out in the lives of your children. For these two young men, they became a part of the New Testament church just because their father was there crossing paths with Jesus. Now in verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink and when he had tasted it he would not drink and so they take him to an area just outside the city a place called uh, Golgotha now I mention that because uh, I think if you went to church you grew up in a small church maybe as a kid that liked to sing hymns one of our favorites was on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross right beautiful song uh, but the reality is uh, it was probably not on a hill far away, mostly because Jesus couldn't have walked that far. But the other reason is because the Romans loved to crucify people right outside the city walls, right alongside a main road, so that anyone coming into Jerusalem would see just what it looked like to mess with the Roman government. You can imagine uh, what it would do to you when you saw people literally hanging on a cross as you came into the city. And so there just outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, even to this day, there's a place that they think they've identified as Golgotha because it looks like a skull carved in the side of a mountain. It was an old stone quarry that they referred to as the place of the skull. Now, uh, this gall that they gave Jesus to drink, this would have been uh, mixed together with myrrh, which was a a pain-killing agent that they tried to give Jesus. Now, this might make the Romans seem like really nice guys. They were giving Jesus a little painkiller. But the reality was uh, they were just wanting to drag out the crucifixion a little bit. Nobody wanted to come to a show if the show ended too quickly. And so if you give him a little painkiller, maybe it takes longer before he would uh, die and give way. And so Jesus, though, refused to drink it. He refused to have any pain be dulled. He was going to take the full brunt of this crucifixion upon himself. Now then in verse 35 and then they crucified him, and they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put, him, uh, they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, and the other on the left so much prophecy being fulfilled right here but just uh, as a little side note that uh, piece that was quoted in the middle is from psalm 22 that same psalm verse 18 about his garments being divided among them and so what we see is that his very identity was stripped from him no longer was he uh, just a jewish man they took everything away he was like any other man at that point in time because he was there to die for the sins of all mankind now uh, this death on the cross not to be too graphic but it was a typical that death by crucifixion would happen from asphyxiation that as a person tries to draw a breath they would actually have to pull themselves up on the cross elevate themselves to get a breath in then as they lowered themselves down, they'd be able to exhale. So at some point, when they no longer had the strength to actually lift up any longer, they couldn't draw a breath in and and would essentially uh, suffocate. So uh, perhaps the most uh, brutal kind of death that's ever been recorded throughout human history. That's essentially what the Romans have come up with here. And this is the death of the king of the universe. So on verse 39, we read, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it back in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise, the priests also mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, he himself himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And so they continued to mock him and, and, and point fingers at him And yet, here's the reality. They could not deny the power of Jesus. Note note that with me. They said he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. They couldn't deny the power of Jesus. Why? Because there were blind people that saw and deaf people that heard. And the lame walked and the lepers were healed. No lepers had been healed throughout the history of Israel except for one guy in the Old Testament. He wasn't even from Israel. He was from Syria. And so they couldn't deny the power of Jesus And yet here in his death, they used this against him. He healed others, but he couldn't heal himself. But the reality is he couldn't heal himself because if he did, he wouldn't be able to heal you or me. If he had at any point in time said enough is enough, you and I would be doomed, damned to hell for all of eternity. And Jesus knew that. And so he left himself willingly allowing himself to be in that position. All this finally to say in this section that what the world wants is Jesus. They, they want Jesus. They want a Savior, right? They want what his name stands for. They want Jehovah is my salvation. They want the free love, free will in Jesus. That's what we like. But, but the world can't stand him crucified. That's ultimately what the world can't take is Jesus hanging on the cross. And the reason for that is if he is the Christ and he is crucified, then it's for a reason, and that reason is us. The the realization is it's my sin that actually placed him in that position. So if I have Christ and he is now crucified, it means that he had to die for my sins. It's a realization of my failings is why the world can't stand it. Now in verse 43, they, they continue to mock him, saying he trusted in God, let him let him deliver him now if he if he will have him for he said i am the son of god and so what we see is the world now coming to jesus saying he trusted in god let him deliver him as they continued to mock and make fun of and the reality is when you're in the moment your absolute darkest moment this is exactly what the world's going to say (laughs) where is your god Where is your Savior now? I mean, you're in the middle of the storm. Do you still trust in God? Do you still believe in God? Surely he'll come to your defense. Because all the world sees is Friday. The world has no idea Sunday's on the horizon. The world doesn't know that Sunday is about to take place. And that's a, a stark reminder for you and I that when we're in the middle of it, and we're hearing all the laughing and the mocking and the jeering to remember Sunday's on its way. Now then, verse 44, even the robbers who were uh, crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. That word uh, land is the same word in Greek that we get for uh, geography. What, what it, that tells me is that there was a darkness that was cast over the entire world. This wasn't a localized darkness. This was a entire world as the light of the world is being snuffed out of the world. The world goes dark for a period of three hours, which I also find fascinating that uh, during the first Passover, the plague that took place directly before the Passover, where the, the firstborn of all the households were killed unless they had the blood of the lamb, that plague was darkness. For three days, the land of Egypt had darkness on the land. And we see here, Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, right directly before his death, a three-hour window of complete and total darkness. In verse 46, and then about the ninth hour, this is important because the ninth hour was the time of the evening sacrifices in Israel. At Three o'clock in the afternoon, they would sacrifice their evening sacrifice. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabathani," And that is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see if you go back to Psalm 22, which I've already referred to, Psalm 22 verse 1 begins with David writing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so revelation to the scripture is opened up in people's minds as Jesus cries out. But notice with me also, this is the only time that Jesus ever refers to his Father as God. Every other reference when he's speaking to him, he says, Father, until right here. As the Father literally has to turn his back upon the Son because he cannot bear to look at the sin that has been placed Uh, not only upon Jesus. I think it's important to note what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He didn't just take our sin, he actually became our sin. The embodiment of sin was placed upon him. And so this is what he did in order that it might be removed for all of eternity. Now verse 47, and some of those who stood there when, he had, when they had heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus yielded up his spirit. No Roman took his life. No Jew took his life Jesus made the decision when it was time for it to be finished John chapter 10 verse 18 what Jesus says is no one takes it from me speaking of his life but I lay it down of myself I have the power to lay it down I have the power to take it again this command I have received from my father and so Jesus makes the decision that it's enough and the words that John said that he mentions at the end as he draws his last breath was to tell which is translated paid in full the debt was completely and wholly paid in that moment he had done what he came to do he accomplished the act and so in verse 51 then behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so as Jesus takes his last breath, the veil in the temple is torn, not from bottom to top, which is how man would have to tear it, but from top to bottom as if done supernaturally. The veil in the temple is torn. The earth quakes, which I think is interesting because as Moses gives the law in Exodus 19, what happens there on Mount Sinai is the earth quaked as the law is given. And as Jesus draws his last breath, the fulfillment of the law, the earth quakes again. And then finally, we see that the graves were even opened up, meaning as the ground shook, the, the lid on the graves literally popped open. But notice with me, um, no one rose from the grave until verse 53. Verse 53 after his resurrection after his resurrection then the bodies in these graves actually came out you talk about some kind of creepy time to be in jerusalem you got dead dudes just walking around so but the important thing to note there is jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and so there we see the bodies cannot rise until jesus rises first verse 54 and so when the centurion And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. I love this, that here's a centurion, a Roman soldier, a Gentile. He doesn't know his Old Testament. He'd never studied the Bible. He'd never sat through Sunday school or any kind of church. He probably never worshipped at all, ever. And yet, in looking at what he was able to see with his own eyes and the feeling he had, He could only come to the conclusion that truly this is the Son of God. I think lots of times we make coming to know Jesus entirely too difficult when the reality is all we have to point people to is look around, (laughs) look around. God is literally everywhere. This is precisely what this Roman soldier came to the conclusion of. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him who were looking on from afar and among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so we see these ladies that were still following after Jesus as everyone else fled, the final of which was the mother of Zebedee's sons. This would be Salome, the mother of James and John, who I have to imagine as she looked there at Jesus hanging on the cross and a thief to the right and a thief to the left also hanging on a cross. She probably reflected back just a few chapters ago when she asked Jesus, How about my son sit at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus said, you don't even know what cup you're asking these young men to drink from. She truly, probably, finally for the first time got it. You're right, Jesus, I did not understand. Now then in verse 57, now when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him and when Joseph had taken the body he wrapped it in a, a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and he rolled a large stone against the door and of the tomb and departed and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb and so what we see here is Joseph of Arimathea now coming to Pilate and requesting the body of Jesus. John tells us that Nicodemus also went with Joseph of Arimathea. These two men were high-ranking Jewish officials. These guys were the upper echelon of Jewish religiosity, and yet they had become followers of Jesus. I've heard uh, it often criticized about these two men, that they were quiet or secret followers of Jesus. They weren't like the other disciples who were up front about it, but they were quiet and yet what we find is uh, at the end these uh, quiet followers of Jesus they were the ones that were still around <laughs> what did they have to lose by the way everything they had everything to lose they were they were set financially they were probably going to lose their jobs maybe even lose their lives probably their entire families would disown them for this very act so uh, oftentimes what we find is quiet followers of Jesus Um, They may not heal people like the Apostle Peter or walk on water. They may not call down fire from heaven like John, but yet these men, when the moment was darkest, they shined the brightest. So if that's you, by the way, if you're a quiet follower of Jesus, maybe you're not as vocal as some others, I want to encourage you because the time will come. The day will come where you will have an opportunity to stand up for Jesus We have an opportunity to actually put that foot forward. And when that moment does come, you are going to shine brightly like these two men did. Now finally, as we wrap up this morning, on the next day, verse 62, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by at night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You are a guard. Go, you, you have a guard. Go your way and make it secure as you know how. And so in verse 66 they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And so these uh, scribes and Pharisees and priests, they come to Pilate and they say, they, they actually repeat back the words of Jesus. I find this fascinating to me, that these unbelievers actually remember the words of Jesus. And guess what? They believed. They believed at least enough to set a guard in place to watch the stone. They, they, in fact, exhibit more faith than his own disciples did. They took off and ran everywhere. These guys wanted to sit there and take a look at the stone and keep an eye on what's going on. And so I bring all that up to say that um, if you struggled at all with belief in your life, if you struggled thinking that things are dead and there's no possible way there can be any kind of life, remember what the Word of God says. And as you press into the word of God, set a watch. Set a watch on that stone. You're so sure he cannot move and just stand back and watch him go to work. Because as I mentioned earlier, we get so bogged down in the Friday of things, in the beating, and the crucifixion, and the death, that we can so easily forget that Sunday is right around the corner. And with it, glorious resurrection. So don't be so quick to cast away the things that have died long, long ago with Jesus. He is in the resurrection business, not in the death business. Now, as we wrap up, I wanted to just point out a few things of significance as we covered an awful lot of ground in this chapter. But uh, just five short things, I promise, a few more minutes. Uh, First of all, note that the veil was torn. This is significant, that as Jesus uh, died and passed off the scene, that the veil ripped in the temple. And the significance of this, Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in uh, verse 14 For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that's the war with God, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. This wall of separation, this veil that Paul is talking about hung in the temple. It separated the outer temple area from the Holy of Holies. This was the one place where the Spirit of God would actually come down and reside, and the Jewish people were only able to send one person in one time a year. That would be the high priest on Yom Kippur. He could go into this Holy of Holies, and it was such a holy place that they would tie a rope around this dude's foot, and they would tie little bells on his clothes, because if he messed up in any way, shape, or form, and you don't hear any more bells, they'd know he died. Lord smoked him, and they'd drag the body back out and pick a new high priest. (laughs) That's, That's how serious it was to go into to access the Holy of Holies. Now, as a little sidebar, I won't get into it too much, but on that day of Yom Kippur, they would actually bring uh, two goats forward and they would put the sins of the people upon the heads of these goats and they would send one away as the scapegoat, that's where that term comes from, and the other one they would sacrifice. And so when you look back at the trial of Jesus, what you see is essentially him taking upon the sins of the people and being the goat that was sacrificed on our behalf for our atonement. That's what Yom Kippur is, the day of atonement. So, Needless to say, the veil was torn, meaning that we now have access to the Holy of Holies. The point here is we can have access to...